I wasn't, she was like, I was over here and she was over here and she leapt and I had to catch her out here. And I said to her, as I caught her and kind of we fell together, I said, I said, next time in my general direction, right? That's, that's how we, but she is so convinced that daddy will catch her, that she will leap off of anything where I am present because I will catch her. And I think that this is something akin to what Jesus is after when he tells us, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. I don't think this is fire and brimstone talk. I don't think Jesus is trying to say, you're not worthy. You don't deserve it. We're sending you to, like, I think Jesus is trying to express to us that the kingdom that he is talking about is a kingdom that is built on faith. It's built on mercy. It's built on grace. It's built on this idea that God has truly made everything, imbued it with his own divine image so that we could express and find him. And we see in Jesus that revelation. And so he's saying that if you want to enter into that kind of kingdom, a kind of kingdom built on trust, then you've got to begin by trusting. You've got to begin by believing. You've got to begin by by actually trusting that, that God will take care of you, not your paycheck. You actually have to begin trusting that God has control of all things. And that when you don't feel like you do over that person, that situation, that election, that, that problem, that job, whatever it is that we're fretting about, we want control and power over, and we all do. Can you trust that God has that? When everyone else is going one way and you just you sense God dragging you in another direction, can you trust him? And you can see in all of this the things that Jesus himself is going to face. He's going to, he's going to face up to all kinds of problems. He is going to face the kind of temptations and questions as he faces down the power of the temple. As he rejects the, the militarism and greed of Rome. As he rejects even the moralism of local religion, as he engages in arguments with these Pharisees, Jesus always confronting the power structures and systems and life that is happening around him and trying to bring grace into it. And these temptations are things that we saw Jesus wrestle with, come out with, and now he is going to begin preaching. We read this text next kind of summarizing what happens after those temptations are defeated and he's able to enter into the world. It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, which of course I love because it's not his own power, is it? Jesus, who we think should be able to be, you know, push through anything. He's the Son of God after all. He returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And there's a report about him throughout the countryside. He taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So Luke tells us here that Jesus, at the beginning, has popular appeal. Everyone is tuning in, and everyone is, is listening and, and interested. Uh, now, next, uh, Jesus is going to take his message into his hometown. This is the text we'll be at today. I'm going to read it. If you want to follow along, you could grab one of these Bibles. It's on page uh, 859. If you just want to follow along and listen, that's fine as well. But here we have the instance of Jesus delivering his, his first sermon, as it were. He says this, or it says this. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendants, and sat down. And the eyes of the entire synagogue were just fixed on him because it's not scandalous for us to hear Jesus read this text, but it would have been quite scandalous for them because this is clearly a messianic text. Jesus is using the text of hope that the Israelites have been relying on, hoping that God would come and set things right. Jesus uses that very thing here. And he began to say to them, verse 21, Today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearings. And all who, all who all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming out of his mouth, and they asked the question, Isn't this Joseph's son? So here we have the kind of the introduction of Jesus' first sermon, which is a lot more in Luke than we get in the other Gospels. In the other Gospels, we get a summary, something like this. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You'll sometimes see these switch. But it's always this kind of formula. And Luke is also going to summarize Jesus' sermons with this formula, too. It's going to be a little bit later. It's going to be in Luke 4, just a little bit later in the text, the chapter that we're reading. But Jesus has performed so many miracles that he's convinced them he is the king. So the people try to crown him. They try to make him the king. And he says to them, no, no, no. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus is clear. I'm not here to take up my throne. I'm here to proclaim good news to the poor. Like, that's what I've, I've come here to deliver hope. And I'm doing that before I deliver my reign. But that reign is kind of coming as well. And so uh, what Luke does here is Luke, instead of summarizing this for us right out of the gate, he starts with this text from Isaiah 61. And then, and then connects that past Isaiah text to Jesus' current message. So in order to understand Jesus' current message, we need to understand a little bit about Isaiah and how those two things overlap. And since um, uh, the Bible Project has an amazing video on that subject, we're actually just going to roll this Bible Project video, which uh, is about five minutes long. And what this video is going to give you is it's going to connect the message of the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus is talking about here, to Isaiah, so that we can kind of understand how these two things are interacting with one another, so we can understand why Jesus has chosen this text to talk about his mission in the world. So go ahead and roll that for us. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. 
Everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running, and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom that needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him. 
the king who defeated death with his love. All right, well, I, I hope that offered some context to kind of the things that are going on in the book of Isaiah and how those are interacting with Jesus and what, and what he is after um, and what he is declaring. So when Jesus opens up his sermon here uh, in, in his hometown, he chooses, as I said, Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 begins with this first statement that he has come distinctly to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, this word poor is a generic term. It, it could be used of somebody who is financially broke. It could be used of somebody who is living under some form of, of abuse or oppression. It could be talking about anything in general. In fact, James puts it this way. He says, pure religion, true religion that our God and Father loves is this, to love widows and orphans, sorry, to remain unstained from the world and to be with widows and orphans in their distress. And his point is not to say, like, if you're married and poor, we don't care about you. It's only about widows and orphans, right? He's not trying to limit it. He's trying to point us to the direction that God goes. And that direction is towards the most vulnerable. That's why the entire letter of James in your New Testament is directed at the church. And James pleading with the church to recognize the vulnerable in their midst. And to make sure that they do not privilege those who have power or position or wealth. But rather, we uphold and exalt those people amongst us who seem like they are less. Who seem like they don't fit in. Who seem like they don't belong. That... that, that what James is talking about is reflecting of what Isaiah was hoping for and what Jesus actually did, that when God came into the world, the first people he came to were the people who needed him the most. He leaves the 99 to seek the one. When was the last time we left the 99 to seek the one. Because I have to say, as much as I want to be encouraging and loving and stuff like that, my experience in church has been almost always that we will keep the 99 to sacrifice the one every single time. Jesus goes to the pain. That's where he goes. That's where we find him. That's why they call him a friend of sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors. That's why he claims, not only am I going to proclaim good news to the poor, but he, he gives some definition to this. What, what does it mean in some of those senses? It means to be free from prison, to recover our sight, to set the oppressed free. And I hope that that video we just watched helped a little bit of this context of of what prisoner would mean to them, of what oppressed would mean to them. Because in the context of Isaiah, we're talking about Babylon, which ravaged their people and enslaved them. In the time of Jesus, we're talking about Rome. And Jesus is speaking to people who hear that, and they, they, they hunger for that freedom. But the story is old, isn't it? I mean, just this Friday, we celebrated Juneteenth, this holiday I knew nothing about. That African-American brothers and sisters of ours celebrate because it was on that day that freedom actually finally came to Galveston, Texas, the last holdout of slavery. 
But we're talking about things that are long past, and yet even today we know slavery is ripe in this world. I was at a conference just a, a, a year ago, just over here, at the, I think it was at the Free Methodist Church over here, that they put a thing on about uh, child sex slavery in the United States. Like, we're talking about the kind of oppression that existed, exists, and will exist again, which is why it is so imperative that the church is the one who is out there announcing the freedom of God, the freedom to be liberated, the freedom to meet peace. Every Christmas, we sing these words. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. These are the words, the beating heart of God. They need to be the words, the beating heart of the church as we hope and live and move. But it isn't simply enough to liberate the body. You must liberate the mind as well. And that's what's meant here by recovery of sight from the blind. Our tendency is to read this quite literally because Jesus did a lot of that. (laughs) Certainly he does. But in the context of Isaiah, especially chapters 40 to chapter 66, the last section of that great prophetic book, which focuses mainly on God bringing the restoration of the world through his agent, through his Messiah, through his Christ, through his king, through the one we call Jesus. And in that section, blindness is not referencing literal physical blindness but a loss of understanding ignorance might be a good word and there are kind of two kinds of ignorance in isaiah's in isaiah's story there's the kind that the people of god have because we have not actually rightly learned god's ways we've 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 lost it we've become blind our perspectives are skewed and then it is full-on idolatry which is kind of more geared towards the rest of the world where even the worship of god is is lost because they're so caught up in the things right here paul says they worship the creation rather than the creator and because of that there's all sorts of sin that creeps in brokenness that creeps into those kinds of communities and so Isaiah is talking about a time not only when all things will be right in terms of oppression, but when all things will be right in that our perceptions and understandings about who God is and what his ways are like are set free. Paul puts it like this in his great text from 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 17. He says, we regard, uh, from now on, therefore, we regard, this word right here in Greek is behold, so to see. Now, uh, therefore, we regard, we behold, no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Most Bibles actually make a little error here um, in their translation, and they make this uh, there into a he. He is new creation. This is a mistake. We do this because we're so deeply individualized that it's actually translated into our Bibles. But this text here doesn't speaking about individual transformation in the sense that you are made new, although that is also true. Plenty of other Bible texts to go to for that. This is talking about a change of perspective. Notice that right here. From now on, when we look at people, we do not see them 
according to the flesh, which is a fancy church way of saying, when we look at people, we don't judge them the way the world judges them, the way that society judges them, the way that popular culture judges them. Whatever it is that we use to say, this is good, this is beautiful, this is true, all of that, God reorients it. He reorients the perspective of your life so that when you see another person, you see kind of what you saw in that video. An enemy who is not here to be defeated, but here to be redeemed. Every enemy is here to be redeemed. Every person exists to be redeemed. And God has called us to be the redeemers, to be the ones out there declaring this message so that people can attach themselves to this life-giving promise of freedom. This life-giving promise of a new perspective of understanding who God is and how to live in the world. And so it brings us to these great old uh, terms that make your brains feel fancy. So I'm going to give them to you. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, which means something like accurate teaching, right teaching, correct teaching. This I would akin to the, the idea of understanding correctly what God is doing in the world. And orthopraxy, in, in relationship to understanding that, that thing that God is doing in the world, we then have to do something in response to it. We have to act in response to God's great love. That Jesus' sermon isn't just a sermon of hope, but it's a sermon of hope and call to action. Of us to gather together around this gospel of peace. Around this king who has made it possible. And forgetting all the other things that are clamoring for us. Drawing us away, drawing us apart, making us enemies of of everyone and even each other. All of those things are nothing in light of the Christ and his freedom and his kingdom and his hope and his coming and his love. When Jesus steps up and he declares that today, today... All oppression shall cease. Today, there's a new way to be human. Today, you can know God. Today, you can get right with God. Today, you can get right with one another. Today can be a day of peace. Today can be a day of transformation. That message, of course, everyone is listening to it. And they're like, wow, that sounds really, really gracious. Sounds really, really beautiful. But if you think about all that has to change, all that has to be given up, you might begin to get a little freaked out. When you find out that Jesus says you have to take up your cross, you have to go on to your symbol of death, you have to follow in my way in humble submission, you're going to get a little freaked out, which is what all of Nazareth did. They thought about it for a second, and they marveled at his gracious words. And the next thing they try to do is throw stones at his head. The next thing they try to do is reject him, move away, because the message is one that flips your world upside down. The perspective will never be the same again. When you encounter true grace, true mercy, and true life, everything changes. Everything changes. It changes the way you see every person. It changes the way you see every situation. Things stop becoming a zero-sum game. Things stop becoming just... Jesus said at one point, stood up in the middle of uh, one of the festivals, 
And he yelled out, Behold, I draw all men to myself. Jesus is calling all of us to him. All of us. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter wherever you are today, God is calling you. He's calling you to meet him. I pray that you'll respond to that call. That you will pursue as much accurate teaching as you can, but you will also pursue as much accurate practice as you can. That we would be what Jesus called us to be. That we would be known, as he said we would, by our love. Let's stand and sing this song.